Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm Rebecca Sung. I'm the director of the Peregrine Centre and I'm very happy to have you listening to us today and very excited to be having a conversation with David Newman. Thanks for joining us today, David. Maybe we'll just take a minute for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hello there. Uh, it's very lovely to be here. I um, I live and work in Sydney uh, as a um, family relationship individual therapist in my in my practice. I also work for the Dulwich Centre uh, down in Adelaide and get have a chance to do lots of training and work actually around the world. So that's. Uh, Exciting. That's quite wild. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And you're here to talk narrative therapy, which is will be familiar to some people and very not familiar to some people. So maybe I'll start with this very simple question and very complicated question. What is narrative therapy? So I'd say the thing that um, probably most drew me to narrative practice is, is a very key theme of narrative practice is it's non-pathologizing. It's determinedly non-pathologizing. Mm. It doesn't. It really is against locating problems within people, yes, and wants to locate them outside of people. Okay, uh, they want it wants to locate problems in culture, um, in uh, context in people's lives. Okay, so it's non pathologizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, clearly by the name of it, is yes. that it uses the the metaphor of story or narrative. Right. We make sense of our ourselves. We make sense of our relationships. We make sense of the world. By the stories we tell right. about ourselves, yes. and about our families, about our relationships, about our communities, and we make sense um, by the stories that other people tell about ourselves, mm. our families, and our communities. Mm. So, it's uh, it's a making ourselves up through narrative, through stories. Mm. A third theme I would say about narrative practice is that no one story captures an identity, mm. captures an individual, a relationship, mm-hmm. a a family, community, mm. no one story. There's mm. always other events of life that are outside of problem story, problem experiences, right. trauma experiences. Yes. And often those experiences, those events of life are in the shadows of the problem story. Right. That's what we would understand in narrative practice. Right. All of those events that are waiting to be storied, events of strength, events of skill, events of know-how are in the shadows of the problem stories. Mm. So, but there's always other stories. So life is multi-storied mm-hmm. uh, is another idea. Um, and I guess related to that is this idea that um, people are not passive recipients. They don't just kind of um, absorb what's happening to them, mm-hmm. especially if they've been treated badly, mm. especially if there's been trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they've had circumstances that have been very, very troublesome for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. They're not passive. They act in some way. They respond in some way. Right. And we understand in narrative practice that those responses add up to skills and knowledges of living. Mm. And um, and when we can locate those skills and knowledges of living, people are able to 
know how to proceed. Yes. They're able to see themselves differently, not not just in a totalized, um, single-storied way as right. just a loser, yeah. as just a, a hopeless, depressed person, etc. Yeah. Hmm. Right. I, I remember many, many years ago being exposed to narrative therapy the f- for the first time and thinking, wow, this is really like another language. You know, there's a, a completely different way of thinking compared to uh, CBT, which is what I was trained in at the very beginning. Uh, and, and there's a lot about narrative that I think is quite different from some sure. of the other models, whereas I think things like CBT, DBT, um, ACT, they, they probably have quite a bit of crossover in, in some of the things that they do. Yeah. So it is uh, I worth, I think, as we talk through today, trying to um, delve a little deeper in, into some of the things that you've been describing there uh, and some of those um, paradigms or ways of thinking that are incredibly uh, different to the ways that sometimes we, we or the paradigms we bring sometimes to therapy. Mm. So let's start, though, with uh, the question that we ask everybody who comes on this series, which is, can you tell us a bit about uh, beginner resources, resources that are suitable for someone who's really getting started with narrative therapy? Mm. Maybe we'll start with maybe just a couple from your mm. five resources that you would recommend? So the Dalit Centre website and articles to read um, and publicate, I think it's, you click on publications mm. and articles mm. to read. Mm-hmm. There's many free um, downloadable articles that mm-hmm. are very, very helpful. Mm. There's one in particular that might just kind of be a good um, starting point, which is um, – a collective uh, question and answer. So commonly asked questions about uh, narrative practice yep. and a whole lot of practitioners have offered answers. Oh. Where, what is narrative therapy? Yes. How might you use it? What what kinds of um, ideas is it related to? Mm. Um, is it anti-medication? Mm. One I would recommend is um, an article that's called Co-Research, The Archiving and Alternative Knowledges by David Epstein, mm-hmm. who is one of the originators of narrative mm-hmm. practice, along mm-hmm. with Michael White. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Epstein was a social worker from Auckland in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, Michael White was a social worker in Adelaide, um, uh, where he describes uh, really one of the tasks uh, that he thinks practitioners should be involved in, that community workers should be involved in, is the archiving of solution knowledges, of mm-hmm. the archiving of know-how. Mm-hmm. He's got a whole de- uh, dedicated website around the archiving of knowledges around anorexia mm. called narrativeapproaches.com. Um, but I think that orientation can be very, very helpful mm. in knowing what narrative therapy can be about. Is about trying, like people speak through us, not to us. Mm. Okay, so we're regularly putting people in touch with uh, know-how, whether it's know-how around how to respond to a drought, mm. whether it's know around, know-how around how to deal with terrible family conflict mm. or anorexia or depression or suicidal experience or grog or whatever the, mm. the problem might be. We accumulate that know-how and we make it available for other people right. um, who we're meeting with. And that's so powerful, isn't it? I, I know that when I've worked with families and they – have some time to teach others in a funny way about what they've been through and what have they learned from those experiences. It really changes their ideas or their stories, I suppose, about themselves, about being, 
I don't know, the person that bad stuff happens to uh, and turning into somebody who knows stuff who can then help others. That's right. So, yeah. so people become not recipients of a service or clients. They become holders of um, knowledge of worth. Okay, so there's two resources. Uh, we might pause that list there just for a second and, and let's jump to the question about key concepts. And I know there are quite a few key concepts really in narrative because it is so different to a lot of the other models. Mm. But if you had to pick four key concepts that you really wanted to talk about today, uh, what four would you pick? Um, first one would be rather than um, coming up with some kind of program for people's lives, mm. rather than linking people to evidence-based practice. I'm not against, and narrative therapy isn't against, any evidence-based practice, mm. but it is committed to the local knowledge, the local idiosyncratic knowledge that people have, um, that uh, we can ask people about that. So, um, And, and uh, we can accumulate a whole lot of very, very diverse responses. Mm. Um, so... Uh, I was uh, I was running a group uh, at a psychiatric unit for young folks um, a little while ago, and I remember uh, a young woman put up a hand and she said, "David, David, I know how I deal with my depression." Mm -hmm. And I said, "Well, that sounds great. Tell, how <laughs> yep. do you deal with your depression?" Yep. And she didn't say, "Look, um, you know, I I keep a gratitude journal yep. or, or whatever," yep. um, which I'm not against. You know, that <laughs> yes. might be helpful for some people. Um, she said, I get out of the house every day and I find a dog to pat. <laughs> yes. Okay. This was her know-how. Yeah, I get her that. Her idiosyncratic, we could call diverse know-how. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, we're interested in that very idiosyncratic, diverse, local know-how that people have mm. and, um, and not so interested in coming up with global solutions. Right. Even well intentioned, yeah. Even that might be evidence based. We're interested in really, really different, uh, diverse know how. Mm. We might just see the historical, cultural contingency of any idea that we get. Okay. Um, where did this idea come from? Is that where did this idea come from? Right, right. So at the moment, there's a, a very taken for granted idea that people have to emotionally regulate. Right. Um, uh, you know, um, affective regulation. Yes. So, um, this is an idea of the moment. Yep. You know, right. I, uh, when I was working as a, um, a therapist 20 years ago, people had to, um, do, a, uh, affective expression, you know, like they right. had to, um, uh, really let it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, it really comes down to, in some ways, when you say evidence based, because I'm sure that we'll get some comments about that. What, what is evidence? You know, what, is, when we talk about a treatment being evidence based, we often think about a big, uh, randomized control trial or something like that. And that is a kind of evidence, mm. but there are different kinds of evidence. And if somebody pats a dog every day and every day they feel better after they pat a dog, mm. that's a kind of evidence too. Mm. That's right. Yeah, it's not to be against evidence, yes. but it's to be on the lookout for those um, that realm of knowledge that's discounted, right. that's low status. Yes, science is high status knowledge. Yeah. Yep. Um, and but uh, narrative practice would be really wanting to respect low status knowledge. Right. Okay. Great. So that's the first of uh, the four concepts that we might talk about today. What's the next one? Let's have a look at, um, say, when people have experienced great trauma, mm. you know, um, mm. that um, 
that there's some something of a response that we want to respect. Um, this has taken some interest, I think, in the field more generally, mm. in, in family ther- therapy field, a response-based practice is something yes. that um, um, some people are really engaging with. But responses, um, they can be quite difficult to locate. Uh, the responses can be extremely small, mm-hmm. but we want to honour them. Okay. Okay. So these these other stories, these stories of know how, do not have to be triumphant. They can be very very small. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I remember once speaking with someone who was experiencing great abuse at home. Mm. Uh, all sorts of things were happening for her, um, and um, and she said, "I I did nothing. I used to sit out the back deck of mm. my house and I would do nothing." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, "Well." Is that a response or not? That doesn't sound like a response. And I, so I asked her, when you did nothing, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? and, um, and she said, oh, that's a strange question, but actually I have an answer. Yeah. Um, I used to try and tempt the neighbor's um, dogs over into my backyard so right. I could play with them. Right. And, um, and, and I said, well, given you did that, what, how come you were doing that? Yeah. Does that say something about what you were um, trying to achieve, something that you valued? And she ended up having a story about how, um, uh, you know, non-judgmental listening <laughs> yeah. was, was really valuable to her. Yeah. So, um, and, of course, if we speak with many people, maybe especially young people, uh, they they often say pets are a great source of mm. support, mm-hmm. a great great solace, mm. um, because it's non judgmental listening yeah. that they get from yeah. pets. So. That's a good example, isn't it? Where the use of the use of language and narrative is quite unusual. That's an unusual question. When you were doing nothing, what were you doing? Mm. Is a, a tricky question. Uh, grammatically, yeah. uh, but it's a very classic kind of narrative question in in the sense that you're trying to uh, get to that I don't know um, exception to the rule or that mm. kind of unusual piece of knowledge that might be buried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's worth just flagging with people. Not that we have time necessarily to delve in that today, but as people read uh, the resources that you would recommend or watch videos, they might notice that the language is unusual and the ways that in which practitioners use it yeah. might be unfamiliar. Yeah. Could I suggest then, actually, I, I um, understand people have some lists, but Alice Morgan's What is Narrative Therapy is mm. a very, very um, user-friendly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, outline or book, for sure, but there's yes. the first two chapters of the book are in the same, um, yes, uh, the same folder in that website right. that I spoke about earlier. Yeah, what is Narrative Therapy um, by Alice Morgan. Perfect, perfect. Mm. Okay, so then uh, the third concept. The third that, one? Yeah. Let's say... Um, um, when people have a sense that they're failing, mm. you know, when people have a sense that um, they're just not up to it. And, and I know this is very, very relevant um, when with people with mental health problems. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with and who have been in the groups that I've run at the psychiatric unit who are experiencing immense pressure mm. as a result of um, particular norms of culture mm. that they're failing in relationship to mm. norms of how to be a proper person, mm. norms of um, how to be a properly social person, 
norms about the kind of ways one has a family, mm. ways one conducts oneself in a, in a conversation, mm-hmm. norms about temporality of life, you know, what you should achieve by certain times. Mm. Often young people with mental health experiences are feeling great failures in terms mm. of the temporality, the, the normative temporality of life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we can ask you know, if you're feeling like you're totally failing, mm. if you're feeling like a total loser, mm. um, what is it? What is it that you're um, the that, that sense of failure, that sense of losing, or being a loser? What is it in relationship to? Mm. What kinds of norms of culture is it in relationship to? Mm. And then once you get those clearer, mm-hmm. you can analyse whether they suit people or not. Mm-hmm. A very simple example would be that young people. Um, in my experience, can feel like they're losing terribly if they don't have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this idea that to be a proper, normal person, yep. um, uh, you know, this is, this is what's sponsoring this yep. or shaping this sense of failure. What do you think of this idea yep. that you have to have lots of friends? Yep. How does it shape your life, this idea that you have to have mm-hmm. lots of friends? Mm-hmm. How does it shape the lives of people around you, yes, right. you know, so we can, we can ask, we can do the mean. They do the meaning making. Yep. We don't tell them that this is a good or a bad idea in narrative right. practice, right. We, uh, even subtly or benevolently. We don't do that. Yep. We ask people to do the meaning making. Um, but yeah, when there is a sense of failure, um, or a sense of losing at something, mm. or not being good enough, mm. we can we can ask, what's that in relationship to? What mm. kind of cultural norms is that failure in relationship to? Mm-hmm. You know, what what kind of criteria of success does failure rely on? Mm. What kind of criteria of success does that sense of being a loser rely on yeah. to give it strength? Yeah. Yeah, we can ask those questions. And that's an interesting uh, idea that I think um, narrative often brings is the idea about culture. That sometimes, you know, sometimes we think about culture as oh, somebody who was born overseas, but culture in the sense of wherever you grew up, whatever neighborhood you grew up in, or the family you grew up in, or whatever, yeah. that there can be all sorts of expectations, as you say, or, um, well, that's just how we do things around here yes. kind of ideas that you. Um, uh, I was going to say by osmosis or kind of absorb yes. from from your surrounds. And they can be, when you really take them out and look at them, actually not really suitable for you. You're, you're not really into that idea. That's right. right. That's right. I mean, we could also build into the conversation that if you are going to revise or refuse one of these norms, it's an achievement. Mm. It's an achievement. It's not done easily. Yeah. You know, what do they do to support this refusal? We can ask those questions. Who or what might support this refusal yeah. or this revision of some of these these norms and give people, you know, really acknowledge when people are able to do that. Mm. It's an incredible achievement mm. to mm. to um uh, revise or, or refuse some of these norms of culture. So, and we would understand that there's a power relationship at play with all of them. Mm-hmm. That, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so refusal is something that evokes um, a, a power relation. Yeah, yeah for sure. So. Okay, last last concept. Okay. So, I mean, one, one thing we might say about um, narrative practice is it's using clearly the, sto- uh, the, the metaphor of a story. Yes. And if we're using the metaphor of the story, I think the written word can can um, yes. fold in very nicely there. Uh-huh. There's a huge amount of 
incredibly creative work that's done using the written word in narrative practice. The written word is often used um, for those times when people forget what they know. Mm-hmm. For those times that people, um, because they're stressed, because they've been treated badly mm-hmm. again, because they've experienced homophobia, racism, sexism, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. they might forget what they know. Mm-hmm. So we want to um, do what we can so that people can get reacquainted with what they know. Mm-hmm. These letters, we can write therapeutic letters, we can write documents of know-how and skill, okay. um, and we offer them to people. Yes. And we invite people to share that with those in their networks, in their families, who um, they would like to inform about what they know mm. about life, how they, how they know um, how, to sh- how to sort of settle a panic attack mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and so the narrative therapy has a very strong ethic about that. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, it would say that what we might be wanting to document are um, – a dignified stories mm. or dignifying stories, mm-hmm. what we might call the strong story, not the problem story. Okay. We might want to document them. And we also, we will want to get people's permission about what is spoken of, what is written of, mm. written about them in these file notes. Mm. And um, letters, therapeutic letters, yes. that's what I would put in the file notes in the psychiatric hospital. Right. I would have had a conversation with a young person about how they deal with suicidal thoughts or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd write them a letter and that would be the file note. And that letter would say, hey, we had this conversation today and this is what I remember about it. Is that what, when when you say I wrote, I would write the young person a letter, what what kinds of things would you include in that? Dear Rachel, we we spoke about um, just how how rough going it is Mm. with uh, these wanting to die thoughts. Mm. Um, And uh, they've really been making a mess of your life in these ways. Mm. Uh, You find that they're almost impossible to wrestle with, but we located a few, a few things. Mm -hmm. The first thing is um, you told yourself, I could never do it to my mother. Mm. You know, I could never do that. Uh, And that's keeping you alive. This has some history because of your love for your mother, Mm. uh, et cetera. You know, that's the kind of letter that I might write. Yeah, great. Mm. And I think that's a good point, isn't it, that um, you may well be working with a young person or client who uh, doesn't read uh, competently or or doesn't feel like they're very confident in their reading, but the letter and writing down the letter, there is a a kind of powerful statement about that, even if you are reading it to them or somebody's reading it to them when they come back to look at it again. That's right. I mean, the the written word at least in my culture, has great status, mm. has great status. If something is uh, getting it down in black and white, you know, yes. um, it has great status right. and um, it is uh, it is given worth. Yes. So that can be of assistance. But right. having said that, it could be a song we write together. Yes. It could be a drawing we do together. Yes. Um, you know, or it an audio recording. It, it a, could be an audio recording on their iPhone mm-hmm, or their mm-hmm, phone. Mm-hmm. Um, however... I find that people who aren't confident and are a bit ashamed, mm. potentially, mm. around uh, writing and reading, mm. they still want something written down. Mm. And, and part of the, uh, the conversation, part of the work can be about who will read this with you. Right. Um, what, what precious person. Okay. So uh, there are four concepts. I'm sure there are many concepts in narrative. And as you can see, it's quite a different way of thinking. But there are, there are four 
examples of concepts. Uh, so then the next question is really about the kind of person that uh, might benefit from narrative therapy. Uh, so we ask for kind of three signs that someone might think, yeah, no, this uh, person would be worth trying some narrative therapy with them. Uh, I mean, if someone's suffering, really, mm. if someone's having a rough time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we'd understand that suffering to be, uh, you know, the, the problem story. Yes. The dominant story yeah. and that there's other ways of, uh, there's other stories that uh, haven't been brought into storylines in their lives yet, but mm. there's other experiences. Um, so. You said before, I thought it was interesting, people who are uh, totalized by the problem, you know, that they see themselves as. Only the problem. Yeah, just a violent man, mm -hmm. or just a yeah, just a receiver of abuse, yes. or you know, just an abuse victim, yes. or, or whatever a naughty it might child, be, or, or a naughty child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those kind of things. Mm. So that's right. So if someone was totalized in that way, that might be a, a um, uh, narrative therapy could be very, very helpful in that in those instances yeah. because there would never be the assumption that uh, what someone's talking about them what and what they're saying to themselves potentially, yes. the story they've developed, yes. is the only story. And I know that some people, when you talk to them about narrative therapy, they don't know much about it except externalisation. That's the thing that has yeah. um, a practice that has translated to many other models. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What is externalisation? So externalising is, in terms of a technique in, mm. in the work, mm. it's about um, objectifying the problem. Mm. Uh, the aphorism of narrative therapy, I guess, is the problem is the problem. Yes. The person, the relationship, the family, the community is not the problem. The problem That's is the really problem. That's really helpful, isn't it? The problem yeah. is the problem. The person is not the problem. The person is not the problem. There are incredibly regular incredibly strong invitations for us to make people problems. Mm. I know just, for instance, in the psychiatric unit where I used to work, there was regularly comments about these intrusive parents, mm. mm -hmm. especially intrusive mothers, yes. let's say. Yeah, I bet. You know? Yep. So mother blame yep. Yep. <laughs> was alive and well in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, so um, it's very easy for uh, people to become problems. So it is quite an ongoing, disciplined way of talking and thinking. Can um, you give people an example of how you externalize a problem? I think it's hard for people to say, um, how do you how do you encourage someone to not see themselves as a problem if everybody in their life sees themselves as a problem? So maybe taking the example of, I guess, a naughty child, and uh, you, you said, or an intrusive parent or intrusive mum, how might you just begin to loosen that idea about or I'm an intrusive mum, or I'm a bad kid. Yeah, so you objectify the problem. So you objectify the problem in, in the sense that you can make it a noun. And the, um, so it's not. It's it might be the naughtiness. We and and one thing with narrative practice is it's um it would be against the imposition of uh, psychiatric or professional language yeah. for people to use to describe their experience. It would be about local. Um, local language, diverse language. Um, so, so people so naming it themselves. Naming it themselves. So, uh, a child might say, um, it's, uh, what would they say? It's the naughtiness or something yeah. or the naughty monster. Yep. Or, um, uh, that, that might be the kind of description. Yeah. So the naughty monster is making a mess of, um, school. Yep. The naughty monster is really creating some havoc in the house. Um, 
not the child. Right. Yeah. So you might say, what does what effects does the naughty monster have for you? And you'd ask the maybe one of the parents. Yep. What effects is the naughty monster having for you? And you'd ask the other parent. Then mm. you might ask the same question of a sibling and also the person who or the child who is um, potentially the problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, And that's interesting, isn't it? It's a um you know, I, I I remember this question. What is the let's say, for instance, the naughty monster want for your life? What do you want for your life? You know, those the difference that you could want things that are different from what the problem wants for your life. Yeah. So that that kind of idea that um, we could we could say that when there's stories in people's lives and they're in competition. Yeah. One one story, in a sense, wants to win out. Yeah. Um, and um, and if we're going to be externalizing a problem, we can personify it. Right. It can be like a monster. It can be like a person or a character yeah. getting up to no good, yeah. an uninvited guest yes. in uh, in someone's life. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we can ask about its intentions, its mm. purposes, its mm-hmm. achie- what it what it sees as an achievement, mm. what dreams it has for this family. Mm. What does the what does this uh, what does ADHD have dreamed up for your family? Mm. Um, and um, yeah, are those dreams that ADHD holds or the naughty monster holds? Do they suit you or not? Yeah, you know, are they are they similar or different to the kinds of dreams that you prefer? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so they're in there. We can have the different stories competing against yes. each other in a way. And I, I think people's uh, one of the kind of hesitancies I always hear from people is, oh, are you saying the child they can just blame, you know, their bad behaviour on? the naughty monster or the naughty monster broke the vase or, you know, did the wrong thing. But there is a kind of sense in which the person is still asked to be responsible for their life, you know, that they, if it's an uninvited guest, how are they going to manage this uninvited guest or work with this uninvited yeah, guest? Yeah, and this question is really important when we when we speak about work with those who harm others, who mm, use violence. Mm. It's, it's very relevant. So mm. if, if any of the work is excusing responsibility, minimizing harm that's done, mm. abuse that's done, mm. and the effects of it. Uh, we don't we don't want to be doing that. But what I what I would suggest is that when externalizing is used, um, people no longer become defined by the problem. They can see themselves differently. There's other yes. stories that are able to emerge more effectively. Right. Okay. There's other ways that they see themselves yeah. uh, that can be built on in the work. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and that so it makes responsibility doors, right? more possible. Yeah, right, what's that? I understand. Opens and that doors. opens doors. Mm. I mean, if I think of myself as not just the naughty child, that gives me some options, response options. Gives you options. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. So so um, in terms of the kinds of people who might benefit, it sounds like people who are suffering, people who might feel like they are the problem or that the problem is all they are. Uh, anything else that you would look for when you're thinking about uh, should this person – Benefit from narrative therapy. <laughs> um, what I what I would suggest as well is maybe if people are experiencing themselves as really failing in in terms of um, um, their achievement of the norms of mm. of culture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and um, if they're having a sense that they're just not enough, yep. um, and um, they don't add up to enough, or mm. um, yeah, it must be such a common experience when people are coming into therapy. That must it's be, incredibly common. Yeah, it's common incredibly report. common. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Michael White um, uh, 
linked that to the to a particular form of power, modern power, mm. which is that as as I as I was saying just very briefly earlier, is a is kind of um, um, it's a normalising judgment that is associated with modern power, mm. um, and it's policed locally. It's not from governments or whatever. It's everybody's <laughs> yeah. policing each other, right? You know, um, so. Um, so it's ever ever present, but it's also ever present to resist it as, mm. a, as a result. Okay. Well, so then the next question is about common mistakes or and maybe it's common mistakes you might see in people you're helping to train because you've been doing that. Um, or it may well be things that you have been doing or are doing in your own practice. Things where you think, oh, actually, there's a kind of invitation to do that in, in the model. And um, I think I prefer not to do that for whatever particular reason. I mean, I, I think in terms of people learning narrative practice, mm. um, I think a mistake, it's a strong word, but I, I you know, and I, I can understand why people might get drawn to this, but they might think that this is, that narrative therapy is very, it's sequential. Like, mm. um, mm-hmm. Michael White, I think, uh, devised very brilliantly some, some kind of, um, carefully crafted, um, what he called maps. That we can use in the conversation to take us on sort of journeys to mm-hmm. um, destinations unknown, um, and sometimes people can people can sort of see it as you do the externalizing map and then you do the reauthoring map or the map around how to build or breathe life into new stories or preferred stories, and then mm-hmm. you do the remembering map, which is the map around how to get rich description of relationships, and then you do this other map that's about engaging audiences to support these stories. And, you know, that, that um, life's not like that. Conversations right. aren't like that. Right. It's 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 not linear. It's not sequential. So that, I think that would be one. Yeah, that's a good example. Um, just to... Um, Look, and, I, and I, I think people can sometimes miss the the politics of experience. Like mm. we we spoke earlier about um, um, normative judgment and, mm. and modern power, and um, uh, and and you know if people feel like they're a loser or something or or they're a failure, um, maybe we uh, if we're using narrative ideas, maybe if we're using other ideas, we might try and help people feel not like they're a failure, mm. that they've got all of these great skills and yes. they can put them to use. Mm-hmm. Now, I would understand probably a, a, a really relevant and important task at in that instance is to try and name the politics, name the norms, um, name the ideas of success or the expectations of life that are sponsoring the failure, mm-hmm. that is opening the door to the failure, mm. um, to try and um, – and that – Loosens without trying to solve the problem of feeling right. like a failure or, lo- or a loser. Yep. That um, just it loses some of its power. Mm-hmm. That failure once those norms are named right. and they're seen as something that's just part of culture mm-hmm. that is shaping this sense of failure. Right. Um, so we're not trying to solve it. We're not trying to build them up by saying you have all of these great yeah. skills. We're trying to work with the problem actually, yeah. and see what it, um, what kinds of cultural support the problem has, what kind of normative judgment support the problem has, mm-hmm. and helping to name it and to explore the effects of this normative judgment. Mm, great. So that, that I think that can get left off yes. as well. Yeah. Um, so doubling back, I guess, on two resources, we, we named three of them. Are there others you wanted to name before we finish today, the last two resources you would be recommending for beginners? There was an article by Auntie Barb Wingard. Like I just I just want to 
say that Auntie Barb Wingard was um, uh, she did die recently, so mm. it is um, might be tender for some people mm. who who knew of her mm. or for Aboriginal folks who might be listening. Mm. Um, so uh, she was a key collaborator mm. with the Dulwich Centre and um, uh, wrote a book um, many years ago called Telling Our Stories in Ways That Make Us Stronger, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a, a beautiful description of what narrative therapy mm. can be, mm. telling our stories in ways that make us stronger. There is a, um, a selection there of from that book on the same folder, mm. the same mm-hmm. uh, link that I spoke about earlier, mm. where... Arnie Barb speaks about how to use externalizing with communities. Mm. She uses local language that First Nations folks were using. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't called diabetes, it was called sugar. Mm-hmm. And she spoke about um, the work she's done with communities around sugar. Right. So they would have someone role-playing sugar. Yep. And, um, and she would ask sugar, um, you know, what, what its tactics are, what makes it strong, what makes it weak, yep. you know, um, how does it find its way into communities, yeah. etc. So, uh, and it was fun, but it was serious. Yeah, diabetes is not a trivial thing, sure. especially for many Aboriginal communities. Yeah. But, um, but that that was uh, that's written up in this uh, article that uh, oh, great. F- uh, yeah. folks uh, listeners might want to have a look at. I mean, that is one thing about narrative therapy, isn't it? This idea about using play for serious. Problems. Mm, and I know mm. there was a famous David Epstein book about playful approaches to serious problems or something like that, where That's right. it, it talk about you know using uh, children and families coming in with very serious, uh, distressing kind of uh, difficulties, but and often we forget the role of play and and this kind of like fun trying to understand, you know, interviewing sugar and what are the tactics of sugar yeah. might seem a bit strange and frivolous, but actually bringing the the uh, tool of play to serious problems can be very effective. It certainly can. And I mean, I, I would say um, as soon as we're in the territory of playfulness or, or less intensity, yeah. um, certainly playfulness, um, we often are outside of the territory of the problem. Yes, right. The problem can't survive there very easily. Right. So I know when I work with those who do want to die, mm. and we're in a slightly playful place, mm. um, despair really doesn't have a place there. Yeah, yeah. Despair can't visit. Mm-hmm. So we're already in different territory. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Great. All right. Final resource that you would recommend. There is a... Um, um, Look, I, I thought that the other the other link I had is to a project that I was involved in. Um, I know a lot of the work that I've been speaking about today has been in response to and dealing with those who have experienced um, uh, suicidal thoughts. Mm. Uh, a colleague and a friend of mine, Marnie Sather, who works in uh, NAM or Melbourne, mm. is um, uh, we came up with a, a resource. Uh, about how people get through once someone they know has died via suicide. Mm. Um, and there's a link to the know-how about how people get through mm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, we devised a whole lot of questions. Uh, those questions were based on insider experience. Both Marnie and I have uh, insider experience of um, people very close to us having suicided. Mm. So... Um, uh, and we sent those questions out to practitioners and people, and they sent 
answers back. So it's a way, f- it was a collective mm. project mm-hmm. and it was for the purposes of um, uh, accumulating know-how around how to get through mm. the um, piercingly painful experience if someone you know has, mm. has died by suicide. Mm-hmm. So that's another link um, mm. that I've uh, I've suggested. Yeah, yeah. great. So, yeah. Okay. So, final question. Oh. One takeaway message. If there was one thing that you wanted people to remember from listening to this podcast, what, what would it be for this particular episode? Look, I, I mean, I think that um, narrative therapy practice is um, – it's 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 a there's a delicacy to it. Mm. There's an artfulness to it. Mm. We're not um, gathering information so that we can offer a um, a pre a sort of a pre prepared um, uh, response or program that people should be put through. Mm. We are doing the delicate work of helping shine a light on what people know, mm. what they their networks, their friendship groups, their families, their communities know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, there's a delicacy to that, mm. and it's not done straight away. It can be done quite quickly, actually, but mm. it, um, but I, I would say it's a uh, it's a delicate practice. Mm. Great. Mm. So, David, I'm I mean, there was plenty in that particular interview, but of course, plenty to come in narrative therapy. So, if people are interested, th- there are five resources they could get started with. Yes. But it certainly sounds like the the Dulwich Centre is a place they could. Uh, look for a treasure trove of various resources, and you do do training as well. So the Dollar Centre does lots of training, wonderful. and there's a easy to easy to find uh, page about different training options for the, yeah. through the Dollar Centre. And I would really recommend that. I suppose uh, I know when I first started. It was hard to understand what narrative was from reading. Yeah. Um, going to do a training, I think I did a five-day training, was immensely helpful yeah. in yeah. just trying to wrestle with some of these ideas because it is, as you say, a bit of an art form and yeah. uh, it takes you a little while to get your head around it. Yeah. But thank you so much for opening the door for listeners mm-hmm. today and hopefully we've piqued some people's interests. Uh, as as always, all the resources you've recommended, we will list them on our Peregrine portal. So if people are interested, they can go to the Peregrine portal at per- theperegrinecenter.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.